Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Iraqi militants say they've executed some 1,700 Iraqi soldiers. And the Iraqi military claims it has killed 279 insurgents. In business and finance, it's all about Iraq this week and oil prices and not so much about the Fed. I think if oil prices go up by another 5 or $10, I think you are going to see tremendous psychological impact. Oil is a little higher this morning, and markets are a little nervous, but analysts say it could be a lot worse. That was oil analyst Fidel Gate. We'll hear more from Mr. Gate in just a moment. Brent oil is now $113.10 a barrel, and that is very little changed since Friday. Also in the news this morning, a huge merger. Medtronic has agreed to buy Covidian for $42.9 billion. And Hang Seng Bank is named the world's strongest bank. So let's take a look at markets here before we get into the news flow this morning. Uh, looking at Australia, the main index there is slightly higher, while little change in Seoul, the Kospi, down three points at 1987. In terms of currency action, the U.S. dollar is trading at 101.97 yen. That's very little change. And also the euro against the dollar, pretty steady at 135.37. And the Australian dollar now, 93.93 U.S. cents. Well, much depends this week on whether the insurgents can get to Baghdad. And we have this clip from the former U.S. ambassador to Iraq, John Negroponte. No, I don't think uh, uh, Baghdad is under uh, imminent threat, but uh, still, uh, it's an alarming situation. More from Mr. Negroponte in a minute. In our featured segments this morning, we'll be talking about Iraq and oil prices with Barry Wood, our international correspondent. We'll also be looking at the world's strongest bank survey. I just mentioned that Hang Seng Bank won that. Joining us for the dis- that discussion is Ronald Henkoff, editor at Bloomberg Markets Magazine. And we'll be asking if it is a good time to buy a home in China. That might seem counterintuitive, according to what you've heard of late. But CBRE's Nick Crockett in Singapore will explain why his firm thinks that buyers should take advantage of price cuts in leading mainland cities. But first, this morning, a look at Iraq. Militants from the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria say they have executed 1,700 Iraqi government soldiers. They posted photos on Twitter to support the claim. If true, it would be the worst mass atrocity in Iraq or in Syria in recent years. Mr. Negroponte expands on his point now that Baghdad is not going to be easy for the rebels. Even without uh, added assistance from the U.S. government, I think these, uh, this force uh, is going to meet pushback uh, from, from the Iraqi armed forces because uh, they're going to come up against better troops uh, and a less uh, friendly environment to them. So, no, I don't think uh, uh, Baghdad is under uh, imminent threat, but uh, still, uh, it's an alarming situation. Mr. Negroponte thinks the U.S. should offer support for the Iraqi government. Some kind of help should be provided. Airstrikes or drone attacks, I think, would be entirely appropriate. And soon? As quickly as possible. Yep. I think every day, uh, every hour, it seems, right. that uh, time, time is lost. So hopefully that decision will be forthcoming right away. John Negroponte with Bloomberg's Al Hunt. Oil analyst Fidel Gate was asked what price of oil would lead to a big impact on global growth. It hit 127 uh, at the peak of the Arab Spring, 
And I think you can see the impact. I think if oil prices go up by another 5 or $10, I think you are going to see tremendous psychological impact, which will likely to slow down economic growth. He says there is already a steep premium on the price of oil. The fact of the matter, we think that oil prices are inflated by at least 20, if not more, $20 per barrel. And the reason for that is the marginal cost of production is below $80. But it was keeping oil prices at the current level is basically concern over supply. And we have plenty of concern. We have Libya, we have Nigeria, and now we have Iraq and could be Iran. So the entire area in the Middle East is very volatile, and I don't think it's going to get any better. It's most likely is going to get worse. Oil analyst Fadel Gate and Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent, joins us on the phone. Barry, good day to you. Good morning, Brian. So does it look like full civil war in Iraq? Well, not yet, but uh, it certainly uh, could go in that direction. It's pretty close. I think uh, watching the oil price, as your uh, previous guests uh, suggested, I mean, that's the key. I mean, where are we now? Here in the U.S., I think it's 107. I think if we go 5 or $10 higher, then uh, we're looking at the prospect perhaps of another recession. So it's very serious. But in terms of your question on the, the military aspect, I think uh, Negroponte is uh, much closer to this than I am. I think he knows that uh, time is of the essence. Will the United States offer support soon, do you think? I think they will. I think something is likely in the next 48 hours. It's uh, very interesting to see that the Americans are now talking to the Iranians. You know, who would have thought that? But, you know, there is groundwork that's been laid with all that nuclear uh, discussion that has gone on. So, you know, maybe something is going to happen. But I don't think uh, the Americans will do anything more than some airstrikes that are very closely coordinated with other other powers. I mean, I don't know if the British are going to be involved in this or not, but this is not going to be a big deal, I don't think. But some kind of show of support for this uh, very weak government in Baghdad, I think, is likely. And where would the American public be on this level of support? Oh, I think they've had it. They've had it up to their ears. And I don't think it has anything to do with whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I think that uh, after more than 10 years in Iraq, the Americans have had enough They've looked at the record, and it doesn't take a Ph.D. in political science to know that the Americans got very little for $2 trillion investment in Iraq and also in Afghanistan. So I think that uh, public opinion is going to be a factor against the president, no matter what he does. But uh, I think that they would support some kind of surgical strike, but any kind of uh, uh, action that might be called an escalation by the Americans, I think, would, uh, would, would have strong opposition here. Let's go back to the price of oil. Are you a little surprised that it hasn't moved more than it has? Uh, even on Friday morning, uh, Brent crude was at $113. It ticked up to about 115 but back down to 113 here in Asian trading this morning. Why isn't oil even moving higher? Well, I think, first of all, the Kurds control the production in that part of northern Iraq, and most of the Iraqi production is in the far south, way down towards the Iranian border. And it hasn't been impacted, and it's very far away, and at least that important oil sector away from the, from the fighting. And the fighting, of course, has happened so quickly. I think that uh, also there's a, there's a pretty good supply of crude. And let's not forget, Brian, that throughout the industrial world in North America and in 
Europe, you've got a lot of conservation that just wasn't the case five years ago. And then, of course, we've got the factor of the United States producing a lot more oil than it used to and being far less dependent on imports. But I do agree with what you're alluding to, I think, and that is that the oil price is the thing to watch. So the Sunnis are a majority in Anbar province to the west of Baghdad and in some of the areas in the north. You've had the Shiites as the majority, as you mentioned, uh, in the south. Does it look like, uh, since uh, Mr. Negroponte was saying that rebels will not find it easy at all to take uh, uh, Baghdad because there are elite forces there and a much stronger Iraqi army, does it look like a divided country then for perhaps a long time? Well, it certainly does. And, you know, the Kurds are very clever. I mean, they've played their hand very well over the last decade. And uh, those correspondents that were in Erbil, their headquarters, now see them moving into Kirkuk, which they could have done at any time. But now, waiting until, you know, this was really an opportune moment, this apparently is a force that is disciplined, that has uh, an organizational structure that is, has integrity. So I think this is the moment for the Kurds, and they're not going to let go of Kirkuk, which is the important oil city in the north. So it, it looks, in that sense, it could be a lot worse, and probably the government in Baghdad is going to have to turn to the Kurds to say, uh, we need your help. We've talked a little bit about the impact on the U.S. economy and perhaps on the global economy. Uh, let's look at some of the latest data. It has been mixed in nature. You had consumer confidence. It was okay. Retail sales, a little disappointing. Um, inflation was worrying some. People like Martin Feldstein were nervous about inflation, but then you had the PPI actually down. Uh, this augurs, I would imagine, for the Fed not making much of a change this week. I think you're right. Everything that you said is correct. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's better than it is worse. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it is, it is a situation where I think Janet Yellen is going to say, look, we would have thought that we would have slightly better economic growth over the last few weeks. But the indicators are that things are going to be better. And again, it all comes back to energy as the big question mark. But I think Ms. Yellen is going to announce another $10 billion reduction in the monthly bond buying. And I think that there'll be no change in interest rates. And she's going to say steady as she goes. She may go down a tenth of a point or two-tenths of a point on economic growth prospects, but she'll have a setup from the International Monetary Fund because uh, Christine Lagarde is going to talk about the U.S. economy in less than 24 hours. So I think the Fed is not going to be a surprise, but any time you've got the Fed chairman taking an hour of questions from journalists, uh, that's going to be interesting and, and in a sense, unpredictable. Yes, because you occasionally get a slip in that kind of an environment. Ben Bernanke, <laughs> yes. he, he didn't make many, yes. but um, but actually uh, uh, Ms. Yellen did when she talked about uh, six months or so. Uh, do you expect that she will characterize the labor market as getting significantly better or still woefully short of where the Fed needs it to be? No, I would guess, Brian, she's going to say, look, it's pretty close to our target. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of this uh, structural unemployment. I think she's going to say that uh, inflation may be ticking up a little bit. And don't forget, we're going to have the consumer price index this week. And uh, the expectation is very modest uh, growth there. But she's going to look at inflation and she's going to look at unemployment and say, I think we're close to target. Therefore, the tapering will continue and it's steady as she goes. Will but, that make investors you know, nervous then? Well, it may, but look, it's in the market, isn't it, Brian? Isn't it in the market that the Fed is getting rid of QE? And isn't the market really 
in a sense, happy that that's happening? Well, yes, yes and no. It's in the market that the Fed is tapering uh, and will probably be done by either October or December. But I don't think it's in the market yet on the approximate time of raising interest rates. We got a little bit of a bombshell from Mark Carney at the Bank of England. And I would imagine that some investors are getting a little nervous about the Fed. Well, you may be right. You may be right. But uh, I don't think uh, we're in as good a shape as Mark Carney thinks Britain is at the moment. That's a good point. We've got 2.61% on the 10-year. That's pretty steady. We're not talking about any rise in interest rates. We're just talking about tapering on buying buying. So, you know, I agree with you. I think Ms. Yellen's press conference on Wednesday is very important. It's only your second one. And uh, Stan Fisher is now on the board. You know, that's going to be his first meeting as a vice chairman of the U.S. Fed. So I think it's important. And and I think she probably will talk about uh, the oil market as well. So we've seen a lot of merger and acquisition activity and another big one this morning, uh, Medtronic agreeing to buy Covidian for almost $43 billion. Now, this is quite a big deal. Uh, it's a, a cash and stock transaction, Barry, that values Covidian at $93.22 a share. And the last time Covidian traded, it was at $60.70. So what is that? That's more than a 50% uh, premium on the last traded price. Uh, it's starting to look like CEOs are getting ready to deploy cash. Is that true? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, after five years and all this money parked overseas, I think it's about time. So if the merger and acquisition market reflects that move by CEOs, I think that's that's good. But look... For all of the time that we've been, uh, you know, worried about uh, the U.S. market, the, the equity market has gone steadily up. We've moved past that sort of no movement at all towards a pretty solid uptend, uptrend. So, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm certainly of the view this is an important week because given all the things that are happening in Iraq and then add in the Fed and looking at the energy market, this will, this will tell us if this trend is real in the States or whether we're going to go sideways again. Thank you, Barry. Barry Wood, and that is, um, uh, or Barry is our international economics correspondent. Uh, that's a regular Monday morning chat that we do, and we've been doing it, he and I, for 15 years. And he was doing it for a long time before I came on board at RTH. <laughs> Time is now 17 minutes after 8 o'clock. This is Money for Nothing on Radio 3. A survey released this morning ranks Hang Seng Bank as the world's strongest bank. So how's that? And that's up from number 10 last year. How's that, that we have the strongest bank in the world? Well, this survey assesses global banks that have at least 100 billion U.S. dollars in assets. It looked at five key areas, including tier one capital ratios, the ratio of non-performing assets and the ratio of loans to deposits. We're pleased to have Ronald Henkoff, editor for Bloomberg Markets magazine, on this program. Mr. Henkoff, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So that's quite an impressive title. Uh, Tell us a little bit about why Hang Seng Bank is numero uno. Well, what the world's strongest bank ranking looks at primarily is the quality of the assets, particularly the reserves of a bank, uh, compared to the extent of its risks. And by that measure, as you mentioned, Hang Seng Bank has a very strong uh, capital ratio, tier one capital, as it's called, compared to its risks. 
So are you saying that it doesn't take many risks or that it has an awful lot of, um, uh, of a cash um, uh, balance or it has, you know, a high level of, of capital, equity capital? Well, it, it has tier one capital of 13.8 percent and then the Basel III requirements, that's the Bank for International Settlements based in Basel, Switzerland, requires a ratio of 8.5 percent. So you can see it, it really exceeds that already. And that's a, really a reflection of the prudence that it's, it's taken. And I guess one of the things they've done is, is uh, pair the dividend a little bit, which, which helps because you're paying out less and you're retaining a bit more capital. Um, does that, uh, is that an important um, metric for you? That is a, a way of looking at uh, strengthening the capital, and banks around the world have been pairing dividends, as you, as you know. And as we undertook this survey, beginning in the aftermath of the 2008-2009 financial and banking crisis, uh, that, that is one of the steps that many banks have taken around the world is pairing their dividends. And what about its majority owner, HSBC? HSBC owns 51% of uh, Hong Sung Bank. Uh, it's, it's owned that for quite a while. It, it bought it. It now looks like a bargain basement price, and it, it's uh, done extremely well for HSBC. But, I mean, where does HSBC stack up in the rankings? HSBC does, does not make the, uh, the top 20. Actually, this year it's 21 because we had a tie in a, in a couple of positions. It's interesting when you look at it, the Asian banks really dominate the list with eight of the 21 being from Asia, including two from from Hong Kong. There are none from the UK at this point and only one from the United States. And which one is that? That's uh, uh, U.S. Bank Corp of Minneapolis. Mm. One reason why perhaps its stock price has done quite well. Hang Seng Bank stock price, not bad. Uh, up towards the top end of a range, and it's quite often trades between 100 and 130, and it's up at about 128 and change now. Um, looking at some of the other banks, uh, as you say, Asia does quite well. Singapore's Overseas Chinese Banking Corp was number one. Where is it now? Uh, uh, OCBC is now number four. It's been number one for two years uh, running, as you said, not last year. That was uh, Qatar National Bank. Hmm. So why do you think that the Asian banks, I guess uh, one reason would be is we were less affected by the whole subprime crisis that we saw in Europe and the U.S.? Well, I think what what banks tell us around the world is that a, a lot of their strength as banks has to do with uh, the effectiveness of their regulators. Uh, the regulators in Asia, uh, in particular, have, have been uh, very prudent. And I, I think part of that is, is not just the recent crisis that you alluded to, but the 1997-98 uh, uh, currency crisis here in Asia. And so there's, there's been uh, years of experience, and, and, the, and the bank regulators have, have taken that in mind and the requirements that they put on their local banks. And so you see both Singapore and Hong Kong doing well. We mentioned OCBC. DBS also up there in the, in the top ten. And, and what was the other uh, local bank here? Was it Bank of China, Hong Kong? Bank of China, Hong Kong, correct. Yeah. And give us a little feel for um, you know, some of the things that these banks are doing besides um, what the regulators are forcing them to do. Well, they're very mindful of the risks that they take, and in particular with the Hong Kong banks, uh, the situation in mainland China with the, with the property lending, uh, they're being very mindful of that, and there's some concern about non-performing loans in China. Uh, so, they're, so they're very concerned about that, and, and I think in particular, Hong Sung Bank has been very aware of that and has taken steps to, to limit its exposure. From the research that you did on all of this, um, do you... Do you form strong opinions on whether or not we might see any kind of banking crisis in China in the coming couple of years? 
in, for the purpose of this ranking, we're, we're lo- really looking particularly at the measures uh, that we that we outline, and it's not it's not particular to, to China. But I do know there is concern among analysts about the non-performing loans, and uh, so that is something to be concerned about. Can you have a banking crisis when you know the government basically controls most of the banks as it? As it is, as it stands, um, is it unlikely then that let's say trouble in housing might lead to a banking crisis? Well, I, I think from what analysts are telling us that the authorities are very aware of the situation now, and it, again, it's it's hard to predict what will happen in China, as you know. Okay, so what's interesting about this, you already mentioned uh, probably the key point, is that the Asian regulators are strong, the Asian banks are strong. Uh, But in contrast, then, does it mean that the regulation that we see in Europe and, and the regulation in the United States is lacking? Well, some people would say that. The other way of looking at this is that the the banks have the mission of making loans. And so they have to strike a balance between having an, an adequate amount of reserves and actually doing what they're in business to do, which is to make loans. So some analysts would say there's such a thing as having reserves that are too high uh, compared to the risks you take. So it's a matter of striking that balance. And, and in that balance, would you say that the commercial banks do a lot better than the investment banks? Well, generally speaking, we're looking in this ranking at commercial banks, not at investment not banks. Not at investment banks. So if I asked you who was in better shape, uh, let's say Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, uh, it didn't appear in this survey. It didn't appear in this survey, yeah. correct. Okay, so what's your main takeaway from the survey? My main takeaway is that if you look at what's happened in the world of banking and the world of finance, 2008, 2009, that the the banks have made considerable progress in strengthening their balance sheets around the world, but but uh, we're we're still feeling the effects of that, and there's still some debate about uh, regulation and what levels of capital are, acu- are adequate. Uh, as you know, the yeah, uh, the okay. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the discussions over Basel III have been quite intense, and there's a matter of striking this balance between risks and and reserves. Mr. Henkoff, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ronald Henkoff, editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Well, CBRE Research says that now is the time to buy residential property in China. So this is a nice segue from a little part of the discussion I just had with with Ronald Henkoff. And so we're joined now in our or in our, not in our studios, but on the line by Nick Crockett, executive director and head of CBRE Capital Advisors in in Singapore. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Mr. Crockett. Yeah, thanks. Uh, You know, it's a little counterintuitive, as I said earlier. A lot of people worried about property in China. Why do you think now is a decent time for, say, people in Hong Kong to take a look? Yeah, I think, uh, actually, as you're referring to, we uh, issued a report talking about the shadow banking sector, um, which talks about the opportunities that may open up for uh, institutional investors, developers in the market. We see it's a, a market at the moment, especially in Tier 1 cities, where there's good supply and demand fundamentals for the next few years. So is it that the developers are kind of cash-strapped, and so they're offering a lot more reasonable prices? Is that, is that one of the key components in this? Yeah, I think um, one of the things we talk about is the tight, tightening of the credit market uh, from the bank's lending to property developers, and there's a huge differential between small and medium developers in Tier 3 and 4 cities um, that have relied on shadow banking 
um, sources of funding versus some of the larger listed uh, developers who um, are able to have greater access to the capital markets. Um, therefore, uh, those, those developers in those tier one markets are able to still buy land um, and offer opportunities to the market. So would you say that people should, should stay with the uh, tier one markets, the primary markets, or should they look afield? No, I think uh, we're, we're definitely saying that uh, at the moment the, the, the best opportunity is in the Tier 1 markets. Again, um, in some of them, and if you talk about some of the markets that are close to places like Hong Kong, such as Shenzhen, um, there's been a real lack of uh, land supply in those markets. Therefore, the pricing is kept reasonably level, um, and also there's less stock out there and less supply in the future, and that offers good, good uh, opportunity for investors. Are the defaults in the China market um, offering opportunities for investors? Well, definitely in terms of our institutional investors, yes, and it's offering the opportunity for them to provide funding to fill that capital gap that may have um, uh, not been there had there been a more robust um, uh, lending, lending market. Um, will there um, be, um, through these defaults, um, more opportunities to buy uh, residential stock, perhaps, but certainly um, it's providing investors the chance to access that market through joint ventures, um, through providing of mezzanine loans and so forth. But that opportunity may not have been there 12 or 18 months ago. So in your view, it's a buyer's market. Uh, do you think that uh, it's a buyer's market then not only for uh, private equity and some of the uh, more sophisticated, larger investors, but also for the little guy maybe listening to this program? <laughs> well, from my point of view, I, I, I definitely uh, am more focused on the, the private equity and institutional investors. And yes, at the moment, um, there is a, it is a good window of opportunity to access the market, uh, find good local partners and get access to particularly tier one markets that may have been more uh, difficult for them to access previously. But are you not concerned that if you get a banking, or rather if you get a housing uh, crisis, if for some reason, you know, the slight uh, pullback in prices turns into an avalanche, um, that, you know, people are going to get hurt by this? Well, I think the, uh, the, the, the opportunity that exists for investors to, to partner and fund developers, um, one of the ways they can do that is um, private by structuring their investments to, to minimise their downside risk. Um, therefore, that you know you would have to have a significant decrease in prices to really affect the, the return of that capital. And are you kind of of the opinion that we won't see a really dramatic downturn because there isn't all that much leverage? Um, you know, people don't have that many other opportunities. They have to put a lot of money down, and so there's probably not going to be um, you know, a real implosion. No, certainly... Certainly the government has plenty of levers to pull to, um, to, to keep the market um, into, a, into growth mode. Um, I don't see that um, at all. Um, we, as, we, as I said previously, the, the tier one markets particularly have, have generally very good fundamentals. There's been a lack of land supply out. So that, um, that, that augurs well for the future. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Nick Thanks, Crockett, Brian. Executive Director, Head of CBRE Capital Advisors in Singapore. 
Well, markets are moving uh, in sort of mixed fashion this morning, uh, mostly to the downside. The Nikkei, Australian Seoul, all down a little this morning. Weather today, sunny periods expected in the next couple of days. Today, mainly cloudy with showers, thunderstorms at first. And the high will be 31. CHK Radio 3. The news with Samantha Butler. An Iraqi military spokesman says he believes pictures purporting to show the massacre of 1,700 soldiers by the extremist Sunni group ISIS are real. Radio Australia's Matt Brown reports from Erbil in northern Iraq. The pictures were posted online on a Twitter account previously used by the extremist Sunni group, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. The captions indicate they showed Shiite soldiers being marched to summary execution. There's no independent confirmation of the images, but an Iraqi military spokesman says the pictures are authentic. They're said to show a massacre in Salahuddin province, where ISIS militants overran a military base last week. The large number of claimed deaths has not been matched by a large number of funerals, but hundreds of soldiers were captured in the region. The images are sure to feed sectarian hatred and bloodletting. There's been fierce fighting in Libya's second biggest city, Benghazi, after a rogue general launched a fresh offensive against Islamist militants. From there, the BBC's Rana Jawad reports. The latest deadly clashes erupted in the early hours of today in two districts of Benghazi between forces led by the